Gentlemen, we are in Matthew chapter 25. We've been studying chapters 24 and 25, Jesus' fifth sermon in Matthew. It's a sermon on the end times. How important this is. I mentioned one of our worship services last Sunday that we often hear the phrase, we need to get on the right side of history. And certain people will make that argument when they see a popular movement coming through and they want to speak to you about your reluctance to go along with the popular movement. They say you need to get on the right side of history. Well, you do need to be on the right side of history, and the right side of history is to be on the right side of history, uh, which is that Jesus Christ is coming back. He's going to judge all things according to God's will and God's word. So it would be, we would be very wise to get on the right side of history because what sermons like Matthew 24 and 25 teach us is that History has a direction. It's not cyclical endlessly. It's not just devolving into nothingness. It is going toward a day of judgment, ineluctably uh, and beautifully. And one day God is going to send His Son for the second time in all of His glory to consummate history and bring it to a full conclusion. And as we're studying here on Sunday mornings in Ephesians, the grand idea is in Ephesians 1.10 where God will unify everything in the cosmos at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the big scheme that's going on. If you're a believer in Christ, you are being introduced into that concept. You are being enlightened. It's available to everybody else, but they don't believe it. And therefore, they don't live in light of it. But we know the grand scheme, and Jesus is teaching it here. So we need to learn how to live on the right side of history. It's a very important series of texts here. And we've noticed that in chapter 24, Jesus gives uh, the doctrinal background for the last day. In chapter 25, he gives us three parables which very vividly illustrate what difference this all makes. We saw in our parable last week with the ten virgins, five were wise, five were foolish. The foolish ones were the ones who went to the party unprepared. They knew what the party was about. They accepted the invitation. They looked just like everybody else. They sat in the pew and sang the hymns along with all the other people. But there was no oil in their lamp, and they had no oil with them. They had no flask of oil. And therefore, they they didn't come prepared. They weren't vigilant. And anyone who's not vigilant is going to be badly surprised at the last day. We come to a second parable, and here Jesus is talking not so much about vigilance as he is about diligence, about how we spend our days between now and when he comes back or between now and when we die. We should be vigilant and we should be diligent. The first parable taught us to watch. The second parable that we're going to read here teaches us how to work until the day that Jesus returns. Let's take a look at it. It's very important, a very important implication of believing biblical history and the future laid out for us by Christ. Uh, This is 2514, page 1876. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. 
But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. Uh, Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. Some years ago, a 35-year-old member of our church asked me to just come down to his office downtown and visit with him a little bit. And then we walked down the street to, to lunch. And on the way back from lunch, he said... Sandy, uh, I've just been thinking about my life. You know, I'm keeping these accounts here and kind of doing this business a little bit on the mundane side. But he said, I really want to do something big for God. And when he said that, I really thought of this parable. And what I said to him was, I'll call him Joe. I said, Joe, uh, and it was not Joe. (laughs) It was just somebody. In fact, I don't think you know this person. I said, uh, Joe, uh, if, you, if you and I were walking down the street right now and Jesus was in his sandals walking with us and we asked him what big deal he wanted you to do for him, can't you imagine he probably would say, go home and love your wife and rear your kids to love the Lord, pray with and for them, fulfill your baptismal vows, fulfill your marriage vows. If you happen to be an officer of the church, fulfill your ordination vows. Don't you think maybe that's the big deal? It's a lot simpler than what you think. He had in his mind some grandiose thing. Maybe it would cost him a lot of money that he could do that would be a, the, 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 the big deal for God. And I, ever since then, I've thought of it as the big deal heresy. 
And so often men want to do that. They want to go out and big conquest, you know, do something that's really going to transform the world. Maybe I can even get my name on a cornerstone somewhere. And really the big deal is, is what the Bible commands us to do. And I think this parable helps us see this so clearly. Let's walk through it. Let's look first of all at the, at the first two verses. And what we see here is that God entrusts His people with talents. Everybody who is a person following Him has talents from God. And here you can see in this parable, He is once again talking about His people in the visible church. The wise and foolish virgins, remember, all ten of them were in the church. They all looked alike. They were all professing believers. But only five of them were actually genuinely converted. And here, once again, Jesus is talking about His servants, those who are at least professing to be in His church. And He's saying there's a division here. And we'll see what kind of division that is within, within His own church. He's not talking about the outside world right now. He's talking about his covenant people, the visible church of Jesus Christ. And here we learn that he's given all of his people talents. And notice in verse 14, the talents that we have are his. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So whatever talents you have are his property. Now that takes some contemplation to get your mind around that one. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 4. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it to you. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He's speaking about himself as an apostle and an elder. This is how people should regard us as servants. He says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So what we have here in this very first verse we're looking at is that God is the one who's bestowed talents on all of His people. Everybody's got them. And they're from Him. Therefore, it is the height of folly for us to boast about our talents, which would be most of us would think of talents as being skills or maybe money uh, or privilege. Why would you boast about anything that you have? Because the believer knows that all these things were given to you. They just came as grace gifts to you. So the first thing to recognize about whatever our talents are, they're all given to us and we are but stewards of somebody else's property. So if you have a particular skill or ability, if you have a spiritual gift, how could you possibly boast about that? It's just something that was entrusted to you to take care of. Now secondly, notice in verse 15, he gifts us differently. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. Now let's look at this verse for just a moment. First of all, we need to ask ourselves, what are these talents? And notice in verse 15, he says that talents were given according to a person's ability. 
So now wait just a minute. Normally when we think of the word talent, the way we use it in English, a talent is your ability. You're a man of many talents, which means you have many abilities, but that's not the way this parable is being taught. A talent is given to those according to their ability. So yes, God gives your abilities, and then in addition to your abilities, what we normally call talents, He gives you talents. What are these talents? Well, talents in this parable apparently are the opportunities you have to use your abilities. So, for example, a talent would be someone who's unsaved sitting next to you in the airplane. There's a talent, an opportunity given to you according to your ability to share Christ with them. A talent is an open door to serve. A talent is a need in the nursery in your church. And if you have that announcement, that talent was given to you. A talent may be someone who is needed to mentor a young man. And you are aware of it. There's a talent that was given to you. A talent may be someone in your office who is struggling with a marriage and could use some help. There's a talent for you, an opportunity. A talent may be someone in your workplace whose mama just died, and there's a funeral. You have an opportunity to go and to encourage that person. There's a talent been put right at your feet. In this parable, that's the way talents are being used. And so often, you know, we'll talk about in our stewardship programs, uh, how do we put it, time, talent, and treasure. And we mean the time that you have, the abilities that you have, and the money that you have. Fine, and, and I'm not saying we, we can't use the word talent that way. That's the way the word is used in English. I'm just talking about this parable. That Jesus is not talking about your abilities. He's talking about the opportunities to use your abilities. Look at that verse real carefully. He gave them talents according to his ability. Now, what is a talent literally? Well, literally, turn back uh, to Matthew 18... When we were studying in that chapter, we had this word talent again. And undoubtedly, you looked at it at that point. At the bottom of page 1859, you have a footnote on the use of the phrase 10,000 talents. And it says there, in Old Testament times, a talent was a unit of weight equaling about 75 pounds. Folks, that's a lot of coins. 75 pounds. It was a unit of monetary reckoning though not an actual coin, valued at about 6,000 drachmas. Look at this. The equivalent of about 20 years' wages for a laborer. Read down a few more lines. And a talent would probably equal $600,000. So 10,000 talents was $6 billion. But back to our story, 10 talents then would be $6 million. So what Jesus is saying to this slave who has so little money that your master gave you a $6 million opportunity to do something good with your ability. He gave another one $3 million and he gave another one $600,000. These are slaves. So you can see the story is quite dramatic. 
And this talent is the gift or the opportunity that is given to each of us differently. Now, you notice in Jesus' teachings, you have this come up very often, uh, certainly with the widow's mites, her two little copper coins that were not even worth a penny that she put in the offering. Jesus said, about that, Jesus said she gave more than everybody else because that was her talent. It was her opportunity to sacrifice, and she took the opportunity, and she exploited that opportunity far more than the Pharisees did. So she gave more than all the others. You notice in the New Testament epistles with Paul, for example, same sort of thing. When he teaches us about the workplace, what does he say? He says it really morally doesn't make any difference, spiritually makes no difference, whether you are a master or a slave. And basically his instructions are, if you're a slave, be a good one. And be sure that you recognize that your real master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you right now in your workplace need to remember that that knucklehead boss you have is not your ultimate boss. And you have another boss that ought to be bringing you transcendent pleasure, transcendent affirmation, and transcendent motivation beyond your incompetent boss. Some of your bosses are in the room, so obviously I'm not talking about them. And so Jesus teaches us that uh, we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, in, in the apostles' epistles, he teaches masters how to behave, that they should be kind and considerate to their slaves. The uh, ethicists of Paul's day, the, the pagan ethicists, taught the same thing. That was nothing new. Here's what was new. Paul also taught ethics to the slave. In Greek and Roman ethics, you didn't even bother to give ethics to a slave because they were incompetent to be ethical. But you notice the equivalence in the New Testament of masters and slaves. They're both taught equally rigorously. Now, Paul says, of course, if you are a slave and you get your opportunity to be free, take it. There's something valuable in life, just like having a delicious meal with being free, take it. But if you don't get your opportunity to be free, be a good slave and work as unto the Lord. So a very rigorous ethical framework was given to slaves which had never been done before in in pagan ethics. But here we see that God gifts us differently and He challenges all of us. It matters uh, not a bit how much we have because everything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. If you can glorify Him with your money, that's a talent. If you can glorify Him with your influence, the opportunities to use your influence are your talents. If you have strength or good looks, if you have time, or if you have the ability to witness or evangelize, if you have compassion for sick people, if you're the good Samaritan, every one of these opportunities are your talents. So that's how the parable is going. God entrusts His people, all His people in His visible church, with talents, opportunities to invest in the kingdom. Now secondly, look at verses 16 through 18. And here Jesus teaches us that we steward God's talents differently. He certainly has noticed this, hasn't he, in the church. People steward their talents differently. Some people constantly contemplate and strategize and execute uh, on their talents 
and do it in a beautiful, consistent, unrelenting way. Some people um, are kind of part-timers. Sometimes they're excited about exploring their talents and sometimes they're not. And some others are seemingly bored and uninterested. And what Jesus is showing us here is that there's a different, different approach. Notice in verse 16, when he speaks about the man with five talents, he says he went at once. Do you see the eagerness there? He went at once. And then the second one uh, also was interested in the kingdom and invested, but the third one not. So whenever you look at the church, your church, my church, all of our churches, you'll see an array of opportunities that are given to people, and you'll see an array of ways in which people manage them. And Jesus is addressing that situation. And here's what he says in verses 19 through 30. Roman number three, we will account for our stewardship. This is the big idea, that he entrusts us with talents, he entrusts us differently, all are not alike, and we manage differently, and we are going to be held accountable for our stewardship with whatever we've been given. Now, first of all, in verse 19, notice that we will account to God. This is the big point. He says, now after a long time, Notice, after a long time. This is back to Jesus' teaching in chapter 24. You don't know when He's going to come. You need to be ready. It will appear to you to be a long time before He comes back. But Peter teaches us in 2 Peter, you well know, that for the Lord a thousand years is but a day. So it seems like a really long time for you because you're counting days. But He's in eternity. So it's like that. But notice that Jesus says, after a long time, that is, after you've had plenty of time to doubt, to choose another religion, to fake this one, to try to syncretize this religion with some other religion, to try to tame the Christian faith, to make it acceptable to everybody around you who's not a Christian. You have plenty of time to do all those things and to wonder if He's ever coming back. You have plenty of time to do that after a long time the accountability is going to take place. So what you have in the Christian faith is that we hold each other accountable on a short-term basis. It's one reason that we, we love to have so many of you in groups, and I hope next fall more and more of you will think about being in small groups where you can actually discuss these things and gently, respectfully hold each other accountable for these things. That's what brothers do in this life because God is coming at the end for the final exam. And... God doesn't make interim visitations. It all comes at the end. It's like the, the British system. You just read and are tutored until the very end, and we'll see if you got it four years later. Uh, but meanwhile, we've got each other to encourage each other, to get us ready for the final exam. But it's coming. We will account to God. There will be a day of judgment upon our work and whether we've exploited the opportunities given to us. Now, what are these opportunities? Keep your finger in Matthew 25 and turn over to Luke 19 where there's a similar parable. It's the parable of the ten minas. And in verse 13, you'll see the parallel here. This is page 1997. Luke 19, 13. 
Jesus says, Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. Okay, engage in business. That's what I want you to see. This is a parallel parable, and it looks as though that's the assumption behind this parable. What are you supposed to do with ten talents? Engage in business. So if talents here is money, it's representing our opportunities. But literally in the parable, the talent is 75 pounds of gold or 75 pounds of silver, uh, probably gold. And we're to engage in business. We're to trade with it. We're to invest it. Which is what we're to do with every opportunity that's given us. We're to exploit it and to invest in it. And so what he's saying here is that we will be held accountable for our work. For our investment with our opportunities. Now some are saying, preacher, you're making me very nervous. And I thought the gospel was supposed to take my nervousness away. Well, it does. But not at the expense of our understanding that we're going to be held accountable for our work. Let me give you an example. Let's just, let's just go through the Bible here for a few moments. Put something in there in Matthew 25 so you can turn back to it. But turn with me to James chapter 2. This is on page 2394. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, teaches us about the relationship between our faith through which we are justified before God with our works. This is very relevant to what Jesus is teaching. Let's look at it. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now let's stop for a moment. Faith is the instrument through which we are found acceptable before God. And it's faith alone. But what James is teaching us, and that's taught in Romans 3, by the way, it's faith alone. We're not justified by our works. However, what James is adding to the Pauline teaching is that that faith is not alone. We're justified by faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. It's a faith that is accompanied by works. And if it's not accompanied by works... It is not real faith. That's what he's saying. It's dead. It's a dead faith, which is a no faith. It's a spurious faith. It's a fake faith. So if it's a genuine faith, it is accompanied by works. So, therefore, you can see you can look at this at both ways. It's both and. When we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we will be ultimately accepted or not accepted based on whether we have a perfect record. Because God is uh, too holy even to tolerate wrong, says Habakkuk. He cannot even look upon wrong. So He won't look upon you if you don't have a perfect record. How are you going to get a perfect record? With the righteousness of Jesus Christ reckoned to your account. That's the judgment that allows you to go into to eternal dwellings. At the same time, all of your works will be judged. 
If your works reflect, and I'm not talking about one little thing or one big thing you did wrong. I'm talking about the body of your work, as they say. If your work is reflective of an unbeliever, it's all been hypocrisy, or it's not even been that. You didn't even try. Or you're faking it. It'll be very obvious at the end, and all your works will be judged. And you'll be judged with it. If, on the other hand, you are one of His people, you are justified and born again, inevitably, there will be works there that will be commended. So you can say you were ju- your works were judged, and they were. Now let me add one further thing before we go any further in this text. Nobody's works are inherently commendable. Nobody's works are truly inherently worthy of commendation because your motives are always mixed in this life as long as you have indwelling sin in your life and you will until the final day. So when you're at your best, you have mixed motives. In other words, if you, you're the good Samaritan, nobody else in your workplace went to the funeral and you're sitting there all by yourself, the only representative from your workplace who went to grieve with the bereaved. And that was a good thing to do. And you're sitting there thinking, you know, I'm the only one here. You just sinned. <laughs> you have mixed motives. You think you're pretty cool. You're really compassionate. Boy, you're quite a Christian. Those thoughts crossed your mind. You entertained them. You actually thought about them. And you actually agreed with them. You know, I am a pretty good Christian. See? Mixed motives. You can't to- take two steps uh, without doing that. Now, so the question would be asked, how then in the world can God ever commend anything that I do? Because everything that I do is is faulty. And before God, none of it stands. So aren't I condemned? No, here's the way it works. In this life, God, He justifies you, He regenerates you, and He gives you the beginning ability to walk with Him. Genuinely, not perfectly. Genuinely, not perfectly. So if I'm walking this way toward the world and I get converted, I'm turned around this way to follow Jesus. But it's not but three seconds until I'm doing this or this. So I'm zigzagging. I'm just doing this all the time, tacking toward Jesus. Now I'm sure there are some super saints that are cutting a much straighter line to the throne than I am. But I'm just doing this. And every once in a while, I do this. And then I go, whoops, and then I come back around this way. So it's a zigzag. Now, why in the world would God ever commend or reward a zigzag work? So instead of honoring Him this way, straight to His face, I'm going out this way to, you know, at a 45 or at a 90. Why would He honor that? Here's why. You're His kid. I've told you the story before about my five-year-old coming out helping me to rake leaves. I had them all in nice piles except for one. He wanted to help. I let him help. He scattered all my piles all over the yard in about 10 minutes. And then he said, I'm cold. I want to go in. I said, okay, go on in. Your mom will have some apple cider for you. You know, go on in, get your hands warmed up. It was a cold fall day because I don't ever rake leaves in November. I wait till about January. And so it was a cold day. And uh, so he starts to go in the house. And then he turns around and he goes, could I have a quarter? <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, a quarter for what? You know, you scattered my leaves everywhere. 
the kid wanted to be paid for scattering my leaves everywhere. Well, so what did I do? I didn't say, hey, take five, you know. I gave him 50 cents. <laughs> Why? He's my kid. And he didn't do any good today except he wanted to be with me. And he wanted to help me. He wanted to be about his father's business. Now, guys, that's the only reason you get rewarded. It's not that your works in and of themselves are inherently perfect or good. It's that they're coming from a kid who's genuinely been, genuinely been made a kid, who genuinely wants to be in the Father's kingdom, who genuinely, not perfectly, wants to be about the Father's business. And you're doing this all the time. You're scattering leaves everywhere. At your best, you're scattering leaves. But the Father will reward you because you're seeking to exploit the talents given you. Okay? So that's the general framework, it seems to me, of how to think about judgment. Now, likewise, here's another analogy that uh, sometimes we think of that helps. We know that when you get to heaven, you're going to be fully satisfied. So to think of your, your life being partly judged and partly commended doesn't seem to fit. Here's the way I think you can think about it. We know that at the resurrection, there'll be no sadness, no sorrow, no tears, no grief, no pain, no mourning. So you won't be sad about anything. So the way to think of it is, you, if you represent a cup like this, you're going to be full right to the top and overflowing. You will not be able to contain anymore. However, if Billy Graham is there, he'll have a big bucket. <laughs> and his will be full also. He won't be able to contain anymore. It'll be overflowing. And it'll be a big container like a big trash can. And then if it's the Apostle Paul, he'll be like the dumpster dumpster. <laughs> he'll be huge. And he too will be full, overflowing. He can't contain anymore. And I'll be sitting here with my little cup saying, man, this is great. I'm so happy. And I'm so happy that Billy Graham is happy. And I'm so happy that Paul is happy. Isn't it great? We're all happy. Everybody's happy. Everybody's got exactly what they know is right for them. And my little cup will be right for me. And, and I will enjoy your huge cup. You know, we won't be comparing, saying, how big? Oh, you got a little cup. I got a big cup. We won't be doing that. That's, that's all the old world. It's all the fallen world with our ambitions and false comparisons and, and just trying to defeat everybody and, and to win at any cost. All that's gone. So you will be full. You will be satisfied. But if you labor for the Lord here, it seems to me the best way to think about it is that your capacity to enjoy is increased. Some of you, if you go to symphony, you'll sit there and you'll think, oh, listen to the oboe that just came in. Oh, the flute just here. And I'm going, no, 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 no. I get the general drift of what's going on. I can catch something of the beauty, but I, I don't hear all the instruments and the counterpoints and everything that you hear. Uh, you've got different ears. If, if I were to go with, with, with uh, our, our music director, Gabe, uh, he would be hearing all kinds of things and delighting himself at a, a, a level of appreciation that goes way beyond what I'm able to appreciate. But I'm going to enjoy it because I love beautiful music, and I will enjoy it. But he'll enjoy it more <laughs> in his way because he has more capacity. You see what I'm saying? And I think that's the way to think about it. So that as you cultivate your life here with Him, 
your capacity to enjoy him seems to be greater. It's like the difference between being a teenager and being a 40-year-old. You just, you just know more stuff. You're able to enjoy more of the subtleties and nuances of beauty. Well, we will all account to God. Back to that point. All of our works will be judged. All of our performances will be judged in that sense. Now, secondly, God will reward the faithful servants. This is verses 20 through 23. These really powerful verses. First of all, he will reward the eminently gifted. He says, And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. So here is one who is given many opportunities, many responsibilities. And look what he did. He labored and invested. He traded and doubled his opportunities. He doubled his talents over this period of time. Wow. Look what the Lord says to him. It's an extraordinary commendation. He says, well done. And in Greek, well done is one word. It's two letters. Ew. Epsilon, upsilon, E-U, E-U. It just means good or well. Well done. Good and faithful servant. The word good, as we've mentioned before in here, is not often applied to any human being. The word good is primarily reserved for God alone. There are only two people in the Bible that are seriously called good men. Uh, one, of Joseph, one is Joseph of Arimathea, who, in whose tomb Jesus' body was laid. He was called a good man. The second one is Barnabas. That's about it. Now, people like this are called good, a good faithful or a good servant. But I'm talking about people by name, pointed out as good men. It's very rare. When you look at the word a tov in Hebrew, it's almost always applied to God. So God alone, and Jesus said that, didn't he, to the rich young ruler? Why do you call me good? God alone is good. And here, the commendation that you get, even though you're a knucklehead, and even though you're zigzagging all your life long, uh, you're a kid and you invest your opportunities and he calls you a good servant. Ooh, man. And then he calls you a faithful one, which is the word for believing. The context here, I think, does, I think the, the uh, translation here is correct, faithful instead of believing servant. But still, you're a faithful servant. You're one whose life is, is uh, compelled by faith. You're trusting your master. So you're a faithful servant. You're reliable and you're trusting of your master. Now we're going to see that's at the root of it. Do you trust him or not? And if you do, you will be trustworthy with the opportunities given you. We'll see how that plays out. Secondly, about this eminently gifted person with many opportunities, uh, they are given expanded responsibilities. <laughs> you would expect them to say, You've been faithful over a little, and now take a big rest and play some golf. Look what he says. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Do you know what the reward for faithful service is? More service. <laughs> now, some of you are going, that just doesn't sound right. Unless you've been in his service, and you know how he's met you at every turn, and you know how he's blessed you and you've been in his service. And if he'll give you the opportunity of more talents, more service opportunities, boy, you'll take them in a hurry because you found the blessing of being engaged in service. And that's the way it is with his kids. So if you're a real kid, 
you are in the process of discovering that deep mystery. So he does you a huge favor when he says you've been faithful over a little, I'll make you faithful over much. Now we know in the ultimate outcome, you'll be over the entire cosmos. You say, oh man, talk about headaches. <laughs> He'll give you all the re resources you need to rule the universe. You'll have all the assistants, all the angels, the cherubim, seraphim that you need to deploy, and you will be governing the entire universe. And it's because you've been faithful with the little bit that He's given you here, just a very little bit. And you will receive much more then. But it's true in this life too. When you've been faithful in a little and you're growing in the Lord, He gives you increasing responsibilities. You should expect that. That if you disciple two men and they come to know the Lord very well and they're living their lives for Christ, you should expect to disciple two men and four men and six men and eight men. You should expect your influence to grow because you're serving. You're using the talent of the influence using it well, you should be expected to give more opportunities to use influence. That's the way it works. And it's a delight. And then notice, not only do we have this extraordinary commendation and an expanded responsibility, but an eternal joy. Enter into the joy of your master. Wow! Enter into the joy of your master. Share the joy of Jesus Christ. Was he joyful? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. You're sharing in that joy. Same joy. And the joy of, your, of the Lord will forever be your strength. So when we take the opportunities to serve that are given us and exploit them, there is immense reward waiting for us. The commendation, the res expanded responsibility and influence, and the eternal joy that it gives us. Now, secondly, look in verses 22 and 23, and you'll see something about the normally gifted is what I'm calling it. The ten-talent person is extraordinarily gifted. The five-talent person is very well gifted. I mean, we're talking here about $3 million of an opportunity. But here's the normally gifted. Notice, first of all, in verse 22, he has half the talents and half the return of the first person. So he gets five talents, and he returns five talents. Or he returns ten talents. The ten-talent person returned 20 talents. So here's a person who... This second person looks like he's half as good as the first one, right? He was only given half the opportunities, and he, of course, returned half of, half of the number of talents. Wrong. Notice in verse 23, an identical blessing. His master said to him, and look, word for word, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Gentlemen, same commendation. Same expanded responsibilities, identical joy. So Billy Graham has been given opportunities, one after the other, to grow in his usefulness so that eventually he preaches to 100 million people. Okay? How many have you preached to? <laughs> you say, well, I started with one, and then I preached to two, and then four, and I think I'm up to eight now. Do you realize that if you've been faithful with what's been given to you to do, the reward that Billy Graham gets is no different from yours? Now, I, I mean, honestly, think about it. It's, it's not the amount that you return. It's the heart that you put into the service. It's the faithfulness. It's the obedience. It's the work that you did for him. 
And to him, that's all that matters. That's the reason that Jesus said the woman with her two mites gave more than the Pharisees who were pouring thousands of dollars into the offering. She gave more. That's the way Jesus actually sees it. You may have a hard time believing this, but this preacher is trying to convince you. It's right here in the text. It makes no difference. Whether someone has their name in the paper and they have an editorial and they, you know, everybody goes to them for advice and they have this wonderful uh, influence and prestige, or whether you just quietly are leading your children to faith in Jesus Christ. As long as you're taking the opportunity that's in front of you, you are just as faithful as Billy Graham is. And it's the same way if I, if I look, for example, at the roles on our church staff. Some of us preach in the pulpit. Some of us clean the bathrooms. Gentlemen, there's no difference. It's a matter of whether we take the opportunity to serve that's in front of us and we do it with a whole heart. There's no difference in the eyes of God. And this ought to shape the way that we look at everybody in the workplace as well. This ought to have a contagious influence upon our mindsets that we look at people as people, as creatures of God. And we look at fellow brothers and sisters in the church as brothers and sisters of God, all on the same footing, and treat each other this way. The normally gifted are identically blessed when they invest themselves. They do the business in the same way the big rich guy did. They did the same business, worked just as hard, and returned 100%. Now, uh, C, and lastly, God will punish unfaithful servants. Generally, people minimize God's judgment. And there have been sur interesting surveys done over the years to ask people what they think about the final judgment and who's going to make it and who's not going to make it. I remember back in the 90s, there was a survey done like this and people were asked who they thought would be going to heaven. And I think Bill Clinton got something. He was president at the time. I think he maybe got a 70% vote. Hillary may have gotten like 72%. Billy Graham got like 75%. Oprah got about 82%. But the one who got the highest rating of someone that this person, as they were polled, was sure was going to go into heaven was themselves, 94%. So... 94% of the people in this country are sure they're going to heaven. They're not sure about Billy Graham, but they're sure about themselves. There is a massive delusion that goes on in the minds of men about the final judgment. For example, some people think Jesus just spoke about it to scare the hell out of you. And so we try to do that with our children. And it's kind of a, it's a moral corrective that we all need to be afraid of the last judgment. It's kind of like Santa Claus, you know, uh, that he's checking his list, checking it twice to see who's been naughty and nice. You know, Santa Claus can bring gifts, but he can also fly right over your chimney, you know, and forget you. And we kind of look at the final judgment that way. It's just a, kind of a gimmick. It's kind of a, a fairy tale that's sort of useful for human relations instead of realizing that Jesus is telling us what's really going to happen at the end of the age. And we need to be ready, and we need to be diligent until He comes. And then there's the delusion that I basically can earn my way into it. 
if I just turn over a new leaf. And it never works. It never will work. You can't turn over a new leaf that's a good enough leaf to get you into heaven. You need Christ. And this is the urgency that goes out to the world even today. There is a final judgment coming and the only way to flee from the deserved wrath of God is to take on Christ who took the wrath for us on Calvary's cross. The judgment is immensely significant and if you'll go through Matthew, I, I found about seven verses where Jesus clearly teaches this. Of all the prophets in the Bible, the one who teaches the final judgment more than any of them is Jesus Christ. And the reason is He knows the Father. He is God Himself. He knows. He has infinite knowledge. And He's pleading with us to flee from the wrath to come. Notice in verses 24 through 27, their indictment is damning. First of all, the wicked servant is wicked. Why is he wicked? Well, he's selfish to begin with. He's selfish because he's saying, I didn't invest, I didn't take the opportunity I had because I knew that you're a hard master. And you reap where you didn't sow. You don't do the work. You send your slaves out to, to sow. And then you take all the goods. And so there's nothing in it for me. So first of all, he's wicked. But you know what? Even worse, he's slanderous. The master sends us out to sow. And he reaps. And then he gives us the entire harvest. We're his sons. And the wicked master slanders the master. Or the wicked slave slanders the master. And says he's hard. He's selfish. He's out for himself. What worse thing could be said about God? What more untrue thing could be said about God? Who created people in order to share his glory with them who sent His Son to die on a cross. What is this, this wicked servant thinking? He's thinking about himself. He's wicked. He's out for himself. He's a hard master. And he's assuming that the master in heaven has his own wicked attitude. That's what he's doing. He's projecting his wickedness onto the master. That's what he's doing. How ugly, awful, and grotesque. So... Jesus says this is a wicked servant, the one who doesn't take his opportunities, the one who doesn't invest his time, his money, his prestige, his opportunities, all of that, in the Father's business, doesn't trust the Father. That's the worst thing about him. He doesn't trust the Father. The Father says, you know, you cannot outgive God. That Bring your tithes into the storehouse and He'll pour out so much blessing upon you, you cannot contain it. You don't believe it. So you withhold the tithe. That's the reason you withhold the tithe. You don't believe Him. That's wickedness. You just don't trust the Father's kindness. That's the worst thing about this servant. Second, notice that he's slothful. Verse 27. If you're not going to invest my money, at least you could put it in the bank and get interest from it. Now, Jewish people didn't do that, but, but Gentiles did. You can, invest, you can put your money in a Gentile bank and get interest. The problem with this servant was not that he did something wrong, but that he did nothing at all. One scholar said this servant had a religion concerned only with not doing anything wrong. And that religion is not going to get you anywhere. J.C. Ryle says about this text, let me just quote him. Um, 
Let us leave this parable with a solemn determination by God's grace never to be content with a profession of Christianity without practice. Let us not only talk about religion, but act. Let us not only feel the importance of religion, but do something too. We are not told that the unprofitable servant was a murderer or a thief or even a waster of his Lord's money. But he did nothing, and this was his ruin. Let us beware of a do-nothing Christianity. Such Christianity does not come from the Spirit of God. And then he quotes Richard Baxter, the great Puritan, who once said, To do no harm is the praise of a stone, not of a man. So make it not your boast that you did no harm, but rather that you did much good in the name of God. Now let's look lastly here then. Not only is their indictment damning, but their punishment is terrifying. And notice two things about the punishment. First of all, they lose the master's gift. As judgment, Jesus takes the opportunity away from this man who didn't trust his master and his master's grace and kindness. He takes those same opportunities, those same talents, and gives it to the man with ten. You see, that just doesn't, that seems like Robin Hood in reverse. This is the judgment that those who have will have much more. Those who invested will, have, will, will be given much more. And those who don't invest, even what they have will be taken away. The only way you can keep what you've got in terms of your opportunities is to invest them. And then you'll be given more. Gentlemen, believe it. And secondly, they not only lose the master's gift, they leave the master's presence. He says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can argue, if you want, about exactly what that means. You can say, well, it's figurative, it's not literal. But let me just say this to you. I don't want either literal gnashing of teeth or figurative gnashing of teeth. Either way, it's gnashing of teeth, and it's not what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to unbounded joy. So, gentlemen... The master has left. He ascended into heaven. After a while, he's coming back. Meanwhile, he's giving talents to all of us. And I just say in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be diligent with what you have, the opportunities that are there to do the Father's business. And be sure that when he returns, you have multiple talents awaiting him from the investments in the Father's business. Let us pray. Father, uh, we thank you for teaching us by your word and we pray that we'll put these things into practice and that we will not do so out of a sense of mere duty or certainly of guilt or fear, but out of eager expectation, wondering why you would reward us and wondering how will the master do it and knowing that it will be better than anything we could possibly have imagined. So put a lightness to our step and a song in our hearts and to put a gleam in our eye as we labor joyfully for you in these days. Enable us, Lord, with your wisdom to exploit the opportunities to serve you that are before us today and tomorrow and every day until we see our master face to face. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.